again, our choir does a great job. Thank you all so much. I don't know, your choir? What, what, what exactly? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll work on that, okay? Before we get started, uh, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Are you, is it running now? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for allowing us our fears to subside. Thank you for the love, the grace, and the mercy that you pour out upon us endlessly. Thank you for the privilege of coming together as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be able to worship you this morning. Thank you for your word and how it springs forth life off these pages into our hearts. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit being with us this day. And we pray that as we worship you, we will do so in a way that will be pleasing unto you, in a way that will draw us ever nearer to you, and that we can go out into the world and make a difference in your kingdom. Bless us to that end, we ask you this morning, and, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be real honest with you. On this scripture reading, I, I've been back and forth all week long as to exactly how to attack this without interfering with what Kirk is going to be speaking about next week. Uh, it, my, my thing for today was supposed to be Matthew 5, verse 10. His next week is 5, 10, and 12. Well, actually 11 and 12. Okay, okay. Well, it's going to be 11, 5, 10 and 11 this morning too, so forgive me for that, Kirk. I'll, I'll, I'll ask for forgiveness rather than... All right. <laughs> Good. I, I thank you. Thank you. Um, if you would, let's stand. I'm going to read all three of those verses and um, so we get a better idea. Stand with me if you would. We're looking at Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. And here's where Matthew writes to us. And Jesus has spoken to us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. 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 Thank you. You may be seated. Well, here we are, nearing the last part of our journey through the Beatitudes. This is a continuation, though, of, of what we're going to be dealing with over the next couple of chapters. But for the next several weeks, or for the last several weeks, rather, we've, we've explored a number of ways that we might attune ourselves with the mercies and grace that God has poured out upon each of us as disciples of Jesus Christ. We've come to a greater understanding of just how we should live our lives to the depths and the fullness that God has so blessed each of us. 
We've even seen or been told what the conclusion of how our living in certain ways will be rewarded. For example, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We've been given in small, or maybe for some of us, maybe not so small doses of of a model by which we should live our lives. For in each of these beatitudes, these blessed are or happy are statements, we see Jesus is is having lived that one beatitude to perfection. And we're to strive to live the same way. Notice now I said strive to live that way. For we know that it's really not within our grasp to be able to dig that deep within ourselves, to be able to live as perfectly as Christ did in any one segment of our lives, to be perfect as Jesus Christ was perfect. And what makes it all the more difficult is that this is just not one or two of these beatitudes that he lived perfectly. He lived every single one of them to perfection. Now, for some of us who would make that concerted effort, if you will, I believe that if we attempted to live as perfectly as Christ did, in at least one of these concepts he gives us to live by, we'd spend the entire days of our lives trying to master the impossible in just that one example alone. All of them would be out of the question. Yet we're reminded by Jesus himself in verses 13 through 16, and again, verses 43 through 48, that we are to live as perfectly as we possibly can. Why? So that we might be a beacon of light to the world. We are to be separate and apart from the rest of the world. And we are to live like it as Christians, whether we're living that perfect life or not. This is what separates us from the rest of the world, though. Living as close to Christ-like as we possibly humanly can. And I underscore humanly here, okay? It's how we are to be. We are to be leaders in an otherwise leaderless world. Certainly, as we've talked about all along in this series, we we can live these simple rules so that we might be a, a good moral person, okay? A good citizen, if you will. So that at our death, people might be able to say, well, he was he or she was a good person who lived a good life. But in order to have eternal life, We are told that we are to follow Jesus Christ and live by these guidelines as perfectly as we humanly can. And as we strive to live by these rules, we're open to the wonders that we as Christians are enlightened to. By being merciful toward others, for instance, we see what kind of mercy it took toward us to be forgiven of the sins that we have committed against God. And it just doesn't stop there. For for then we can not only see that it's not just a one-shot deal that this grace and mercy was given, this forgiveness was given to us. There has to be an endless stream of mercy poured out upon each of us in order for us to continue to be forgiven. Why? Because we are human and we are weak and we are prone to sin. We do it a lot, unfortunately. I've said this before, but it's the one thing we're really good at sinning. So we need an endless supply of mercy poured out upon us. 
Hence, we should be merciful in the same way, don't you think? None of us deserve mercy, but it's freely given to us, and because it is, then it should be freely given by us to others. And if we're merciful, what's going to happen to us? We're told we will be shown mercy. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't give enough mercy to others. But because God has promised His mercy to me, you can bank on the fact that I will continue in my own weak way to try to get better at it each and every day. This is the attitude, and this is not to pat me on the back here, okay? Not by any stretch. This is what each and every one of us should be doing each and every single day. That's the attitude that we as Christians should have, each of us, all of us. All these Beatitudes are ones that we should constantly strive to get better at. Except maybe these last one or two, if you want to consider 10 and 11 separate. But then again, maybe especially verses 10 and 11. Matthew 5, 10 and 11, briefly Jesus tells us this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, when they even speak evil of you. Rejoice and be glad. All right, who wants to be the first to sign up for that ride? Huh? Yeah, that, that's a tough one, is it not? I, I don't know of anyone in their right mind, no offense, that's going to look at that passage and say, Oh, that's my favorite of all the Beatitudes. I go out of my way to be ridiculed. I love to be made fun of, don't you? I hear they're looking for volunteers to be put in jail for going to church. Let's, let's go down and let's be the first in line so that we can be arrested. My guess is, is you probably would be the only one in line. Now, I don't mean to make light of this particular subject. Not at all. It is quite serious. Understand that. Many people over the centuries have been persecuted jailed, even killed for the cause of Christ. But if you think about it, who was first in line to be persecuted and killed for our cause? Hmm? Now understand this. There really is nothing particularly good about being persecuted for persecution's sake. Okay, There's no social redeeming value to it at all. There's nothing particularly sanctifying about being abused either. I remember back in the late 60s and early 70s. And this, this building is very special to me because this is where I came to sign up for the draft when I was 18 years old. That was a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> that wasn't funny. That was serious. Okay? <laughs> but back in the 60s and 70s, many people were put in jail for burning their draft cards, for refusing to enlist in the Army for protesting the Vietnam War. These people went to jail. They did their time. With any kind of luck, they realized that jail wasn't the place that they necessarily wanted to reside for long periods of time. They went out, they got a job, they got married, and they let that part of their lives die a quiet death. In other words, they were persecuted then for what they believed, but their persecution in the grand scheme of things really did not mean a whole lot except to themselves and maybe to a few others. Persecution for the sake of and in the name of Jesus Christ, however, 
will have lasting repercussions in the eternal life. It's not something to be taken lightly, this persecution. It isn't something to run from, but to seek it out and live in it for the sake of righteousness. Preacher, I'd just rather double up on another one of them and, and, and forget about this one if it's all the same to you. Remember this, though. We should want to be like those who have suffered because of our commitment to Christ. Who suffered for us. But are we ready to do the job if it's laid out before us? Have you ever thought about that? If you look at the average magazine or TV program, what is it that you see? Do you see those working in the mission fields of of Pakistan or Russia? Or do you see some young lady who is about to have some young actor's child and we just can't wait to see how much child support she's going to be able to get from him or what expense is going to be taken to get out of his legal duties? How many shows on television right now are nothing more than the results, positive or negative, of paternity tests? Ever thought about that? How many actors do you see proclaiming their love for Jesus Christ on these shows? How many programs are proclaimed their beliefs in the church of Scientology, let's say? I saw one yesterday afternoon. I was at Publix. Lisa Marie Presley, you know, Elvis' daughter. I've been abused by the church of Scientology on the front page of one of the rag mags right there at the counter. Y'all know those kind of magazines. But you know, people look at those things and they don't necessarily see someone who's being abused. They see something about a church that's a little bit different than perhaps I've known before. Sometimes negative advertisement can be just as effective as any positive advertisement could ever be done. So here you've got somebody that's, that you know, may be interested a little bit about looking up on the internet about the Church of Scientology. Or maybe they go back to our earlier days of Tom Cruise and, and John Travolta who were big members of the Church of Scientology. And you see something that they have done and you think, hmm, if they do it, it must not be all that bad. It must be cool. We are told... To seek out what feels good and what what works for us in this life. It's a form of moral relativism. This is nothing new. There is nothing new under the sun. Understand that, folks. I've said this before, but every sin that's committed right now, it's a different package, but it's still the same thing inside that box no matter what, okay? But this is the same thing. Moral relativism. If it feels okay to me, it must be all right. That, that's the belief here. But that's an, old, that's an old thought. There's nothing new here. There is no commitment to a life like that, though. Because the truth is always changing. This life becomes one of, of compromise, of taking the road more traveled. And because of that, we will take the more popular route to keep from being confronted with our beliefs. In essence, we will stand for nothing. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You know what iron pyrites are? The term for it is fool's gold, okay? It'll, it'll, under the test of fire, it will burn away. 
Real gold, on the other hand, will not burn away. It's the mark of true gold. It's the difference between fool's gold and the real deal. Only the real thing will survive. Withstanding the test, the persecutions of our faith, when, um, then that is what separates us from the fake Christian. And the church is packed with them. I used to think when I was much younger that to be persecuted meant to be put to death. I pictured in my mind the government coming to my house, turning it inside out, looking for Bibles and them finding one. There they'd just take me out in the front yard, shoot me on the spot, and that would be that. I'd never have a chance to renounce my beliefs and continue to live. Or I would be asked straight out if I was a Christian, knowing that I would be if I was, I'd be executed if I said yes. Go back to Columbine. Many years, 20 years ago or more, the first person that was killed, I believe, at that school, the, man, the boy asked this girl, are you a Christian? And what did she do? She said yes. And he killed her right there on the spot. Could I do that? Could I say yes? I often wondered. If someone asked me, and I was under the gun, as it were, if I were a Christian, could I have answered Yes. When I came to the realization that there was a pretty good chance I'd say no, I'd feel so weak. But you know, it doesn't even have to come to that point of persecution. Not to that sense, at least anyway. Simply not saying anything when sin's going on around us is folding under the pressure of persecution just the same. You ever stop to think about it that way? Therein is a test. Burning up of the fool's gold, if you will. You know where you are in your faith and and you've never even had to be confronted with the threat of death. How does that make your faith surface? How do you know if you've got the real faith or not here? How is something as simple as letting the world do their thing without ever giving your opinion, whether it's right or wrong, how can that be an acid test for our faith? Well, in my opinion, that's where our true motives are revealed. If we go along with it, we in essence are saying, hey, sure, I'd do it too. If we're against it though, if we go about it the way the Scriptures tell us to, then the world is going to know this is the way I'd do it. And the way that it's being done by the world is wrong. In marriage... And this is not always the case. Don't get me wrong here. But in marriage, vows have been taken. There are some words that mention usually for better or for worse. Almost in every ceremony, aren't they? What does that mean? I mean, after all, they're just words, right? I'd love him no matter what you may think. But what about the time when marriage is tested? And when you realize that when you kiss that frog, you're getting warts rather than getting the prince. People often would rather switch than fight. Your love is tested. Your love has failed. Oh, well, I'll live and love another day. There are many examples of how you might be tested and learn what your true motives are. You even see it in churches. You may join a church that you, you see that or think that fits all your needs until something doesn't go your way and you leave. Why? I mean, it looked like the perfect place, right? It's when the times get tough 
when we often learn about what our real, our true motives are in life. We find that we want God to serve us rather than us serve God. Maybe we should change our book of standards and one of the questions or add one of the questions when a person joins the church and have them say, do, do you take this congregation for better or for worse? See if that would make any difference, right? Are we really committed to God in times, in good times as well as in bad? Are we committed to God for better or for worse? Who will we be serving? Who should we be serving? Who do we really serve? The world or God? Now again, Kirk's going to get into verse 12, I think next week a little bit more. But Jesus tells us in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Because in that same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're not the first in line to be persecuted, folks. Okay? And in essence, is what chapter or verse 12 is saying here. You're not the first, but what they ought to go ahead and say is, and you won't be the last. To put what Jesus says into our modern day words, true people of God oftentimes seem to get themselves persecuted in some form or fashion. While in contrast, Trast, false prophets, even shallow Christians, the world usually thinks pretty well of, or, or at worst, they think nothing of them. Think about some televangelists who have made splashes over the years, who have told the truth, and people come out against them. And think about others, and I'm not going to name names today. I could, but I won't. Uh, think about others who are just looked at as, as another part of society. They're invited to all of the end parties and all this other kind of stuff. And they just take one of their private jets and he and his exceptionally good-looking wife always are there. They're just part of things. If you want to know who that is, ask me afterwards. I'm glad to tell you. First name's Joel. I know, there's plenty of Joels, right? Okay. Anyway, I, I... Every time I think about him, I do. Never mind. Okay. But if, if they, they, the people like this don't stand up, they don't stand out, they don't stand for anything necessarily. Now, there's a lot of churches that go the opposite way on this, and we've got to be really, really careful about that too. They're very judgmental. If you don't agree with me, you're going to hell. I grew up in one like that. But there are churches now who are, if if anything, you know, that they disagree with, then it it can't be right. Theirs is the only way. So we have to be very, very careful about being too judgmental in a case like that as well. It's pretty hard to be persecuted, though, for anything when no one knows what you believe. Or you stand up for some things that are so radical. Common sense tells you you should think twice about it, okay? 
want you to look at John 15, 18, and 19 when you get an opportunity. Jesus tells the disciples, if the world world hates you, remember, he says, that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, as it is. You don't belong to the world. But But I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. If you don't have John 15, 18, and 19 circled in your Bible, or however you do it, do it. Make sure. This is one of the rationales behind what we do. You'll never be surprised if you know these verses. Okay? That term hate can mean anything from being talked about to being cast out of certain circles to being jailed, even killed for your beliefs if you truly stand up for them. If the world truly knows what you stand for and you won't stand for it. Have you ever gone swimming in a stream or in a body of water that has a strong current, a creek, you know, big, maybe a river, something like that? You swim with it, what happens? Really nothing. You just got a smooth ride, don't you? There ain't a whole lot goes on when you're swimming with the current. You don't even know what's going on. You just float with it. Everything's fine. But what about the time that you get off of your raft, if it's shallow enough, and you stand, and you put your feet on the ground? What happens right then? You start getting pushed back, don't you? You start getting forced back, don't you? Try to swim against that current. What happens? It'll do everything but attempt to take you under. But it will wear you down to the point to where you cannot swim anymore and you will drown. Consider that. You fight to the very end to try to stay alive, don't you? And so you should. The point here is that when we try to live up to the standards of this and every other beatitude that we have studied in the last few weeks, and we do it for the spiritual reasons that we've been talking about, rather than just to try to live a good moral life, few people are going to cheer you on. Some may even make fun of you. In certain places in the world, living for Christ might even cost you your freedom, maybe your very life. Many throughout history, if you think about it, have called living the life of a dedicated Christian foolishness. I've seen, again, TV shows and there's a lot of media in different different aspects of life written uh, some editorials, maybe, written by very good Christian people about subjects that are... Quite honestly, very sensitive, very explosive topics in our culture today. Topics that if we simply said nothing, we'd be considered good neighbors and the world would really just leave us alone. At the same time, the world would think we go along with it if we don't say anything against it. But these folks tell us in these editorials that certain lifestyles and decisions in life are sinful. They are wrong. And God doesn't look at these sins with the wink of an eye the way it's suggested that we should look at them. These editorialists are made fun of. They are chastised. Their beliefs and their intelligence are even questioned because they come out for what they believe. They stand up against what the world thinks is right. 
Now, these people don't always totally have their scriptural facts straight. But one thing I do believe is when they write these things and they put them out into public, they are opening themselves up to public ridicule. They understand that. And yet they still have that editorial printed. I say good for them. They'll be called old-fashioned. They'll be, they'll be mocked. Maybe they'll even be called ignorant. I say good for them. What were we told a few weeks ago? Blessed are they that mourn. That mourning means over sin. Ours and everyone else's. I say stand firm against the current of popular opinion when that opinion includes sin being popular. So what does Jesus say again to be when we're facing persecution? We're to rejoice and be glad, right? Not asking for much there, is he? Why should we be why should we rejoice when bad things are said about us? Why should we be glad when our intelligence is questioned? When we might be stand to be jailed or, or even worse for precisely the reasons that we've said already. Persecution will clearly and undeniably demonstrate to everyone the reality and the firmness of our faith. Sometimes just by our standing for something speaks louder than anything we could ever say or do. That kind of standing up for something defies explanation. Can't be reasoned away. As we stand for our faith, we're we're making a statement. The statement is we are serving God and Him alone. Just like telling your spouse you love them. Words aren't any cheaper the more we say. You don't get a bulk price. But where our love is confronted and we stand up for it, that says everything that we need to say. Hence, it's the same way with our faith in God and our love for His Son, Jesus. And when we suffer for our faith, when we take a stand for our faith, we are on the road to becoming more like Christ. We can, as Philippians 3.10 says, know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Why do we do it? Why has it been done so many times over the years by so many who have given up personal freedoms so that those who don't know the good name of Jesus Christ can be brought to faith in God and experience new life in Jesus Christ? Again, next week, Kirk's going to talk more about the rejoicing and all especially. We need to take up our cross and follow Christ for the very sake of Jesus. For the sake of others, for those who don't know Him, and for our very salvation. We're told, as a reason to do it, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What else can you say? What else do you need to say? What other reasoning can you give or or even think of for rejoicing over being persecuted for our faith? If the world was all we had or all we wanted, oh, there'd be no reason for being persecuted for our faith, would there? 
I, I doubt any of us would even be here this morning, would we? If the world was all we had, or all the world was all that we needed. But we as Christians, we see beyond this world. And I believe that is why every single one of you all are here this morning. We know that there is reality to come that is far more wonderful than anything this life has to offer us. A reality so wonderful that nothing we face in this world is too great a price to pay to attain that world to come. Eternal life. Heaven is the one thing that we must decide whether we want it bad enough or not when it comes to being persecuted for our beliefs. No matter what degree that persecution may come to us. Will we be separated from the world by our faith? Or will we be separated from God for a lack thereof? That is the question you and I must ask ourselves. And we must ask it often. Pray with me. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for this harsh lesson. And yet... It's a lesson so full of hope. So would you bless us, Lord, as we try to digest these, uh, these words. Not easy to, to come by at all. May we stand up against the world rather than just fall for it. Bless us to that end, we ask you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.